The Roslyn S. Silver Class of 27 Lectureship was established in 2002. It allows us to bring to Barnard distinguished women scholars in the natural sciences and mathematics to discuss new and exciting advancements in their research. It's my sincere pleasure and distinct honor to introduce tonight's holder of this lectureship, Rebecca Jordan Young, Assistant Professor of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies here at Barnard. Beck, as she's known by her friends, um, earned her bachelor's degree at Bryn Mawr College in political science and women's studies and her doctorate in sociomedical sciences from Columbia University. She's a specialist in study design and measurement and she conducted epi epidemiological research on HIV AIDS, urban health and drug use before joining Barnard's faculty in 2004. Her research has been supported by the National Institutes of Health, and she is the award-winning author of the book, Brainstorm, The Flaws in the Science of Sex Differences, which was published by Harvard University Press in 2010, and which received the Distinguished Publication Award from the Association for Women in Psychology. Now, Brainstorm was on my summer reading list. Um, you know, summer, that season when you actually get to read books with some focus and attention, and it was a really thoroughly captivating read. I'm a historian of late ancient Mediterranean religion, so this is a little far afield for me, um, and I was completely taken in by this wonderful argument, because not only is Beck a consummate critical scholar where scientific inquiry and women's gender sexuality studies come together and intersect, but she's also one elegant prose stylist. The book is simultaneously chock full of careful analysis of more than 30 years of scientific publications on brain science and gender differences and a gripping and completely fascinating read. Probably most important to say about the book and Beck's work is that she's approaching her work from within the framework of scientific inquiry. That is, she takes scientific method, the ways in which researchers formulate their questions and test their hypotheses very seriously. Precisely because we live in a culture that accords a great deal of authority to science and because science is so routinely invoked in a wide range of political contexts, in other words, because science matters, um, it's for all these reasons that Beck wants to hold the scientific enterprise to a high critical standard, as her book Brainstorm shows. Her current research project builds on the work in Brainstorm in exploring through examples drawn from physical and mental health research some basic questions about measurement in sex-specific medicine. In this work, Beck asks, what kind of variable is sex and can it be measured separately from gender? When we have information on specific biological mechanisms underlying health differences, what does the variable sex add to our analyses? These questions are not only theoretical questions, as interesting as theoretical questions can be in, our, in their own right, but also questions about the quotidian practice of scientific research and the clinical application of scientific knowledge in healthcare. So we have much to learn tonight from Professor Rebecca Jordan-Young, who is going to give us a talk on sex is not a mechanism making sex-based medicine more scientific. Well. Thank you so much, Elizabeth, for that very generous and wonderful introduction. And I also want to thank the BCRW staff and student workers. And um, also, I want to just mention um, that Janet Jacobson, who's on leave, has uh, really helped me to, to think about this and, and was important also in bringing me here. So I want to thank Janet in absentia. 
Um, and definitely thank all of you for coming. I know most of you. This is all my friends right here, which is fantastic. Um, but I also, that means I know that you're very, very busy and you've come from far and wide to hear this tonight. So I'm incredibly honored by that. I want to also just note that a lot of what I'm going to be talking about tonight is not work that I've been doing on my own, but it's work that has emerged from a bunch of different collaborations. And um, I love to collaborate, and I have fantastic colleagues here in New York and all over the world who I've been thinking with about these things. I want to particularly acknowledge Professor Jean Stellman from the Mailman School of Public Health, who is here tonight. And I don't know if any of the others are here. I know Kristen Springer, a professor at Rutgers University, is not here. Raffaello Rumiati of the International School for Advanced Studies in Trieste, Italy, unfortunately couldn't make it. Um, and Dr. Kili Cheslek-Postova, also of the Mailman School. Th these four collaborators I mention in particular because um, together uh, with them in separate groups, uh, I've published recently two different articles in the journal Social Science and Medicine, as well as a third article on my own. Um, and those articles really do present and go into a lot more depth some of the material I'll be talking about tonight. So I encourage you to take a look at those. Now, uh, before I get going in earnest, I'm going to give you a brief roadmap of the ground I'm going to cover. I'm, I'm going to first have a few preliminary comments, and then I'm going to get into what is sex-based medicine, just a very quick overview. And in particular, I'm going to talk about what's the connection um, to the feminist health movement. Um, then I'm going to talk about a few basic terms and concepts, explaining various alternative ways that feminist scientists and other feminist theorists think about sex, gender, sexuality, and contrast their usage with the ways these variables are used right now by other scientists and practitioners in sex-based medicine. Third, I'm going to examine in detail some particular problems that I see in sex-based medicine right now. Several of these are related to the way that sex and sometimes gender are conceptualized in the field, which is why I have to do that terminology, but even more so to how they are enacted. And by that, I mean, what are the practices that actually apply these concepts? So it's one thing to have an abstract definition that is, you know, uh, working in one particular way and that makes distinctions and so on. But when you look at the concrete research methods, recruiting, study design, etc., then sometimes differences in the way that the meaning of those uh, concepts actually emerges. And um, through that last one and, and um, with some final comments, I'm going to give a few ideas for course correction. So... There are two overarching points that are so important before getting to this agenda that I want to make them explicit now because they've clouded a lot of debates about sex-based medicine. First, I want to say there's nothing inherently anti-feminist about focusing on differences. In fact, some great feminist thinkers, especially women of color and lesbian feminists, have proclaimed that embracing difference in a clear-eyed and non-hierarchical way is key to changing systems of oppression. I've put up here two quotes from Audre Lorde from a classic uh, piece in the book, Sister Outsider. It's from a talk that she gave in 1980. And Audre Lorde is one of the people who really insisted that 
one of the problems that she saw in systems of oppression around the world wasn't that people were seen as different, but it was the way differences were approached as consistently hierarchical. And um, many feminists, Lord as well as others, have also talked about the tendency to have binary thinking, to split everything into either or, and how that creates many, many problems for not not difference itself being a problem, but the kind of difference that we're used to seeing is the problem. So I'll, I'll simply read one part of it. Lord, in particular, said, we have no patterns for relating across our human differences as equals. As a result, those differences have been misnamed and misused in the service of separation and confusion. I'm not going to read the entire quote, but I just wanted to lay that out. Um, and... Uh, glossing differences between, and in particular among women, um, is in fact a, a problem. It's one of the key problems I'm going to point out. So I want to plant this idea that some of the problems that I discuss aren't about too little difference, but instead, I mean instead they're not about too much difference, they're instead about too little difference. And Lord, other African-American feminists, in particular the Kambahi River Collective and our brilliant neighbor across the street at the law school, Kimberly Crenshaw, have demonstrated empirically ways that glossing these differences um, in order to highlight a contrast between the sexes is not an innocent simplification that is simply unavoidable in order to make effective political change or to do good science. Differences among women are not icing on top of a more basic layer of differences between women and men. So a second preliminary comment has to do with another familiar binary, this nature-nurture notion. So the relationship between the physical body and behavior or social interactions is not analogous to hardware and software. As I'm sure you've heard, the nature versus nurture debate is over because there is, in fact, no nature without nurture, and vice versa. For example, our genes used to be viewed as a blueprint or an instruction book that simply contains all the information about how our bodies will develop and respond in certain circumstances. But we know with certainty that genes aren't a unilateral command and control center. They do different things in different contexts. So the ultimate characteristics that develop depend on the environment of the organism, and when I say organism tonight, I mean us, um, and approaches to health that try to tease out and pull apart essential or biological factors in order to explain health differentials between groups trip over this fact very often, even if the scientists doing the studies know in principle that there's no such thing as what we might call naked biology, biology that is just somehow on its own out there without particular contexts, and that's important. Development and processes of development are always crucial in understanding health. So I just wanted to give you um, this reminder that the issue to resolve in understanding human development and health, whether we're interested in similarities or differences, is not the relative contribution of biological versus environmental variables, because that already misrepresents biology. So I hope you'll just keep these things in the back of your head as you listen to the rest of the talk tonight. Old habits are hard to break, but we must break these two binary habits if we're going to get to a more accurate and useful understanding of how our bodies actually work. So what is sex-based medicine? 
According to the Partnership for Gender-Specific Medicine, which is what they call it up at Columbia, this is the science of how normal human biology differs between men and women and how the manifestations, mechanisms, and treatment of disease vary as a function of gender. Now, I'm going to refer to this field tonight as, as sex-based medicine. I don't say sex-specific in part because I'm arguing that it's actually not very specific. And I also am using the word sex instead of gender, even though some of the centers use gender. I'm going to call it sex because, in fact, the approach to health and bodies in this field is better captured by the word sex than by the word gender. And this will become more clear as I go along. So... Um, given this, uh, this definition, it's important to know that um, the, the center up at Columbia, founded in 1997 and renamed in 1992, was the first academic center devoted to sex-based medicine in the country and I think in the world. But many other centers have sprung up. There's an international society now. There are numerous national-level societies. There's a journal. There are multiple meetings. And it's really a, a movement that has enormous momentum and tremendous funding, particularly from uh, the federal government and from pharmaceutical companies, which is, uh, I don't know the proportion of funding from those two sources, but I know that those are the two major funding sources. And now I just want to um, make a, a small comment that although I'm going to have some pointed criticism for dominant trends in this field tonight, this talk should be seen as friendly fire from someone who's been involved in advocacy and research related to sex and gender in medicine since the early 90s. And also, uh, the course that I've taught here at Barnard more often than any other course is an introduction to women and health. And uh, a great many of the, the, um, the concerns and complaints and, and, and specific studies that travel under this field are precisely things that I teach in that course. So it's something that uh, I, I have uh, some real ownership, some stakes in. Now, when I started um, getting connected to this whole uh, arena, I had been doing HIV prevention research already for a few years. Like many researcher activists, I was frustrated by the way that the disease had been framed around men's experiences. One of the most familiar examples of gender bias in medicine is the fact that women with H advanced HIV infection would often die without ever getting a diagnosis of AIDS because the criteria for the diagnosis didn't include some of the serious conditions that affected women with HIV, such as cervical cancer and chronic severe vaginal yeast infections that wouldn't respond to treatment. A less familiar example of how gender bias created specific problems for women with HIV is the fact that certain drugs were made available to men to treat HIV, um, to, with, for men to treat opportunistic infections, but were not made available to women because of the fear that the drugs could affect fetal development. And this kept several promising drugs away from women as a class regardless of their intentions to get pregnant or to avoid pregnancy, nor their plans and attitudes towards terminating versus carrying to term. So the possibility of fetal harm is certainly something to take seriously, but as many HIV advocates, including me, pointed out, the hypothetical risks for not yet conceived fetuses could be addressed in a variety of ways without blocking women with HIV across the board from a chance to try life-saving treatments. So there's much more I could say about that. My point
point in telling the story is just that I'd become familiar with quite a few aspects of male bias in medicine through HIV work. And by the time I joined in, women's health activism was already decades old. It was a huge grassroots movement. By the 1970s, there were over 1,200 feminist health collectives in the United States alone, including collectives that focused in particular on the experiences of poor women and women of color. The critique of medical research and practice emerging from this movement was profound. And it included broad areas in which women got too much from medicine and other areas in which they got too little, in too much. Medicalization, natural processes were, uh, that, uh, of women were identified as disease states. Menstruation, pregnancy, childbirth, and menopause were routinely uh, pathologized in, in the approach, both in research and clinical care. Psychologizing, symptoms were more likely to be interpreted as neuroses or psychosomatic. Too much medication, in particular tranquilizers and mood elevators, and uncontrolled testing of drugs and procedures, often without adequate informed consent. Now, on the other hand, there was too little. In particular, there was too little respect for women's own self-report of symptoms, side effects, for women's own physical self-knowledge, too little attention to the health dangers of women's social roles and work. In particular, women and girls being discouraged from sports and exercise, bias in hiring, pay, promotion, and so on, the stress of sole responsibility for childcare, many, many factors of gender-based violence, rape, incest, domestic violence, the mental health effects of pervasive sexism, ergonomics in pink-collar jobs and other jobs that women in particular occupied, um, more of too little, too little research on women-specific medical issues, lack of inclusion in clinical trials, underfunding of research on disease manifestation in women, and, I would add, um, uh, inadequate and, frankly, blanket exclusion of, of women from conditions that affected women and men. There was, in fact, um, an official policy that um, barred women from clinical uh, testing, and the idea was that all clinical testing could simply be done on men. Um, so there was no, no attention to uh, the possibility of emergent differences. So, some women, it's worth just pointing out, are especially harmed and neglected. Multiple forms of oppression mean that some women are subject to specific kinds of abuse or neglect from the healthcare system. And I'll just quickly mention that women of color and poor women have been much more subject to sterilization abuse, exploitative drug testing, not to having uh, no insurance and having that, so that the non-system that we have affects poor women much more. Uh, sexual minorities, doctors may refuse treatment, uh, inappropriately try to change sexual orientation rather than address health problems. There are many, many studies that have been done over the years showing that uh, many doctors say they would rather not have lesbian or gay patients, for example, don't much like to treat them. Um, and there's uh, a fair amount of literature showing health effects of discrimination within medicine. Older women are another good example. Um, uh, routinely... Um, Pain issues, for example, are not addressed, treated as complaining, and so on. So um, in connection with my HIV work, 
I took part in some very early meetings of the Office for Women's Health Research at the NIH just a couple of years after that was formed. And I, w I met there on both lesbian health and on women's HIV issues. And at the time, I saw that there were very hopeful developments. My optimism was based on the fact that the prevailing culture of male bias in medical research seemed to be changing at a rapid pace because of the combination of activist momentum and receptive uh, officials in key positions in Congress, in the NIH, etc. Um, so some of the prescriptions that the movement had, been, been, had put forward for addressing all this sexism in medicine looked like they were getting a little bit of uptake. Um, sexism in medical training. For one thing, um, the quotas keeping the number of women in medical classes way down got lifted and, and some particular uh, programs got put in place to actively recruit more women medical students. Um, there were, uh, I, I lost my timeline, there was supposed to be another slide in between here that showed you um, different uh, particular steps that had been taken at the federal level where the Office for Women's Health Research, for example, was created at the NIH and so on. So there were concrete bureaucratic changes, changes in the laws around drug, drug testing, inclusion of women in clinical trials, and so on. And so these are a handful of the important prescriptions that the movement had put forth, and a few of those looked like they were really getting addressed. So. I had some optimism, but I was also concerned because the content of the meetings and demands uh, for these new agencies and protocols seemed to me to lean too heavily on a simple strategy of change that boiled down to including women and documenting sex differences, what sociologist Stephen Epstein later called the inclusion and difference paradigm in his wonderful 2007 book, Inclusion. So two big things that were important to me as a feminist health activist and scientist were missing from the agendas at these meetings. First, a clear commitment to understanding male-female health differentials as driven by a synergistic combination of social and biological factors. And second, the understanding that women constitute a heterogeneous group in which internal variation is just as important and interesting as variation between women and men. So. You see this, this bottom one, this sorting out causes of sex differences was fading away. This is clearly something that absolutely was not prioritized as we moved from the feminist-based women's health movement to a more institutional form of sex-based medicine. And that it's not surprising that when it got institutionalized that that would fall out, but it did. So one of the most important um, uh, contributions to this field uh, is this document. It's the single most important document in sex-based medicine, a report issued by the Institute of Medicine in 2001. The title, Exploring the Biological Contributions to Human Health, Does Sex Matter? The title already gives you a clue of where the field was going to go. The biological contributions, not exploring the contributions to male-female differences in health, for example, but there are two clues in the title. We're going to prioritize biology, and it's about sex. We're not actually interested in gender, in the social realm, and I'm going to, I'm going to explain what I mean by that more in, in a moment. So this document reflected the work of a 16-member committee that IOM brought together to evaluate and consider current understanding of sex differences and determinants at the biological level. Here, um, as they put it, their charge was, where did it go? 
to consider factors and traits that characterize and differentiate males and females across the lifespan and that underlie sex differences in health, including genetic, biochemical, physiological, physical, and behavioral elements. Don't get distracted by the behavioral, <laughs> because actually, as it turns out, there's nothing at all in that document that provides any guidance for thinking about how you would consider the behavioral, how you would consider anything beyond um, the, the uh, material that you might encounter in uh, a doctor's lab. Um, so the focus, they say outright, thus the focus of this report is on sex-based differences versus similarities as they are more likely to successfully demonstrate the need for, fur for further research and lead to greater understanding of the significance of sex in human biology and health. So I, I would, and the people I've been working with would all take issue with the idea that focusing on sex differences in, is in fact going to necessarily lead to greater understanding, but it's important to see that that's been quite explicit. So some key elements to note, as I say, approaches to biology as basic. Um, in particular, let me read to you their definition of, of gender and, and sex. And I'll give you more on gender and sex in a moment. But they, um, the, the report provides these definitions. Quote, the classification of living things generally as male or female according to their reproductive organs and functions assigned by chromosomal complement is sex. And gender is, quote, a person's self-representation as male or female or how that person is responded to by social institutions based on the individual's gender presentation. They continue, gender is rooted in biology and shaped by environment and experience. So they've separated the two, but they've said, in fact, that both of them ultimately come from biology. To return um, to the other elements here, they, they assert early on in the report that wide-ranging sex differences are already established. Three, they prioritize differences, as I said. And finally, um, they assert sex as a universally important variable. It's a global variable that should be automatically connected and analyzed in virtually all health research. This is explicitly laid out as one of their recommendations, and it's one of the most frequently repeated recommendations throughout the report. Sex should be collected and reported for every single data set. This creates some very specific problems. Anybody who's a statistician in the audience can already anticipate some of them, but I'll, uh, so I'm just going to say it creates problems. Um, and leave it at that for now. I'm not going to go into more detail on the IOM report in part because Steve Epstein has written about it so well and also the, the, um, one of the three articles in Social Science and Medicine, the one um, beyond a catalog of differences with uh, Springer, Stellman, and Jordan Young talks more about the report as well, so you can look there. I do want to mention in addition to these programmatic elements, there's an aspect of tone that's worth noting in the report. And that is, um, the report positions sex-based medicine as new, brave, even revolutionary. For example, on the first page of the executive summary, probably the most uh, frequently read portion of the document, one finds the claim that, quote, historically, the research community assumed that beyond the reproductive system, such differences do not exist or are not relevant. 
Now, this claim would come as a surprise to many historians of science and medicine who've documented many variations of radical difference models in Western medicine. Uh, I point this out because this claim that women have traditionally or historically been considered as biologically the same is both wrong, it's inaccurate. There's a great deal of empirical evidence that that's not the case, both in late, earlier periods and more recent periods. But second, this claim is repeated relentlessly as a backdrop to the notion that sex-specific medicine is really unprecedented. It's an important marketing tool for all of this. Now I'm going to turn, as promised, to language, because language is central to the practice of defining and measuring the phenomena we work with in science. The broad notion of sex is actually a gloss for many different things. People in most disciplines now use the terms sex, gender, and sexuality uh, to, to point to particular domains. But the use of this language is, as I've said recently in my book, confused, confusing, and contentious. Begin with the distinction between sex and gender. Since the late 1970s, most scholars have used these terms in a general way to distinguish between aspects of the physical body, that would be sex, versus social and behavioral dimensions, gender. Feminists in particular found this distinction useful for asserting that the social and behavioral patterns common to men and women couldn't be automatically traced to biology. In 1975, anthropologist Gail Rubin wrote of the sex-gender system, which she identified as, quote, a set of arrangements by which society transforms biological sexuality into products of human activity, unquote. That is, gender, the attribution of aspects of human personality, relationships, behaviors, privileges, prohibitions, um, attributing all of those to the domain of either masculine or feminine is a social phenomenon rather than the result of human biology. Sex, in this theory, refers only to the material body, particularly to those portions that are necessary to reproduce it. So later, Rubin proposed that sexuality, the realm of erotic desires and practices, should be thought of as a separate domain, especially emphasizing that this domain should not be reduced into either gender or reproduction. So male and female bodies must obviously meet, at least historically, in order to accomplish the biological necessity of human reproduction. But the elaborate and particular rules about the ways that bodies meet, touch, and interact, and the designation of some forms of desire and pleasure as masculine versus feminine, as well as natural versus unnatural, indeed as sexual versus not sexual, belonged to the realm of the social rather than the raw material of biology. And again, many people, Carol Vance, uh, important uh, anthropologist of medicine, many, many other feminist theorists have contributed to the work around trying to, to think about what can we do, what can we do differently if we actually distinguish these instead of have this lump version, package deal of sex. Now, um, these distinctions have been commonplace in this way in feminist literature and in particular, that distinction that I mentioned about where did it come from, the idea that the social and sec that gender and sexuality are not rooted in the body um, hasn't been adopted everywhere. In fact, others, including many psychologists, doctors, and biomedical researchers, have adopted the sex versus gender distinction less, less consistently, 
often simply substituting the word gender as a more contemporary or polite word for the whole package. When they do make the distinction between gender and sex, it tends to be at the level of measurement or possibly phenomenology. That is, gender is located, perceived, and measurable at the level of behavior and language. Psychological functions sometimes will get added in to gender. Um, whereas sex is located, perceived, and measurable at the level of the physical body, chromosomes, genitals, secondary sex characteristics, I should add internal reproductive organs, um, uh, endocrine di ratio differences, and so on. Um, but these biomedical thinkers either tend to reserve, um, they, they reject the assertion that gender is fundamentally a social domain. Instead, they either reserve the possibility that both sex and gender might be traced to causes that are ultimately biological, or, as the IOM report did, they outright assert that both are based in biology. And that's increasingly the case that you'll see that it's simply, um, at this point, uh, treated as if it's a, a fact that's recently gotten settled, that actually, in spite of some questions about that in the 70s and 80s, feminists raised these questions, but now we know gender is really coming from biology, too. Okay, and nearly all of them treat sexuality as part of gender. Um, in fact, as the driving force of gender, reasoning that a reproductive imperative causes and supports fundamental differences in behavior and psychology between men and women. In my own work, writing and teaching about health in a way that spans both feminist and biomedical approaches, I have to do some tricky negotiating between writers and researchers who use these terms in very different ways. So. Anybody who's heard me talk before knows that I use this metaphor of a three-ply yarn, where sex refers to the physical body, gender to psychological attributes, sexuality to erotic desires and practices. And I talk about a yarn because they're tangled up together. And in particular, the three-ply yarn suggests that they're simultaneously distinct, interrelated, and somewhat fuzzy around the edges. And if you take the three apart, in fact, they get even fuzzier. I, I looked for a good piece of yarn, but all I could find was twine that was too stiff for my demonstration to you tonight. Um, so if you do untangle a piece of yarn, you'll see that each strand actually, if you so much as roll it between your fingers, sometimes depending on the yarn, it just starts to disintegrate. They really depend upon each other in certain ways for their structure, socially at least, and narratively. So it's it's useful to see that they're separate, but it's not always clear, and the, the separations among them aren't necessarily stable and constant. That's an interesting thing that some gender theorists are doing now. Um, but I also use the word yarn because um, a yarn is a story, and the three-ply yarn further suggests how sex, gender, and sexuality are about our narratives. In other words, the perceived relationships among bodies, desires, and a wide range of social norms governing the roles and interactions that males and females have, these are central to the stories that we tell ourselves about human nature and the meaning of maleness and femaleness. And scientists draw on these stories just like everybody else does. They're, they're underneath the decisions that are, that are made less explicitly and overtly, but implicitly in work that people are doing virtually always when they're working with human populations. So distinguishing these allows us to actively explore the relationships, and it also gives us an opportunity to investigate causal processes. 
um, if, the, if the theory of causation is already built into this, into the relations and how we think they're related, then you can't investigate it. So I suggest we need to back up and take that theory of causation out. As a, I, unfortunately, I'm not going to say too much more about sexuality tonight. That would take a whole other lecture. I've got enough on my plate talking about some aspects of gender. So um, I will just say that the possibility of considering sexuality as a distinct domain that shapes health is something that also gets obscured and distorted in the current approach. So I mentioned that um, the institutionalization of sex-based medicine involved some unfortunate narrowing. And the narrowing came at the precise moment when feminist epidemiologists, health activists, and biologists were applying intersectional approaches to health. That is, attempting to understand how gender is a dynamic structure that interacts with race, class, sexuality, global political location, um, geopolitical location, and other power systems to produce specific health-relevant experiences and exposures. Now, my favorite example of how... Um, I'll give you quickly, even those areas traditionally thought of as defining women's health aren't universal among all women. Menopause is a great example. Um, not all women all over the world actually experience hot flashes, a classic symptom that, um, you know, if you move among women in their late 40s and 50s and, you, you know, nearly a day, <laughs> it's amazing if they go by without people talking about hot flashes. And they're they're a genuine experience that uh, they, we can measure them, we can talk about them, people are studying them, but it's quite fascinating. Women, not women everywhere, have hot flashes. Lots of women don't even recognize the concept when scientists have tried to investigate who has them, how severe they are, and so on. Um, and that seems to be related to lots of interesting things. Calcium intake, um, the kind of physical exercise that women have done in their lifetimes, um, the number of children that they've born, the length of breastfeeding, the kinds of chemicals in the water are a possibility. There, there are many, many suggestions for what that could be. And certainly, cultural frameworks for the way we think about menopause are also critical in this. What do you expect? How do you explain the sensations that you feel in your body? What frames of reference do you have for them? So my favorite example of how um, feminist epidemiologists have used intersectional approaches to... Um, to use these distinctions between sex, gender, and sexuality comes from Nancy Krieger, a social epidemiologist at Harvard. These two quotes are from a very short, really useful piece in the International Journal of Epidemiology in 2003. So here, Krieger just points to the fact, as I mentioned, that um, uh, there's a huge amount of confusion in biomedical literature over the terms that sometimes gender actually means woman if you read the piece. Sometimes it means this whole package. It's, it's not consistent. But she went on to observe that um, there's a lack of clear conceptual models for considering both simultaneously to determine their relevance or not to the outcomes being researched in terms of sex and gender. She also said... She just pointed out, you know, it doesn't make any sense uh, to think that it's only one or the other, and she has a lot of ways for thinking about um, we don't live as a gendered person one day and a sexed organism the, the next. We're both simultaneously, and here's the key. For any given health outcome, it is an empirical question, not a philosophical principle, as to whether diverse permutations of gender and sex matter or are irrelevant. 
I hope you can see some of these. These are a handful of examples. Um, that She gave 12 examples in that piece. And if you see, there's this chart that I just want to show you that has four elements. Gender relations and sex-linked biology are viewed as independent or causal variables. Uh, as, and then health exposures um, and health outcomes. So you can think of a health exposure as something like... Um, um, getting infected with HIV and the outcome might be developing AIDS. Or health exposure might be literally uh, coming into contact with the virus, whether you actually become infected or not. Exposure could be somebody sneezes on you and do you get the flu or not. Exposure could be uh, a vaccine and the outcome could be do you develop immunity. Sometimes the exposure is a positive thing and the outcome is something you want and not necessarily a disease. But she charted for many, many different things. She simply drew out the ways that some associations um, where males and females differed on some health outcome were, it was important to actually think carefully about is this sex or is it gender or is it both working together? In the top example, um, she's looking at uh, the greater prevalence of needle stick injury among female compared with male healthcare workers. And here, Quite obviously, it's nothing about biology, but how would you explain that greater prevalence? And it has to do with occupational segregation in the health professions, that that women are the ones filling the jobs that handle the needles. And so women are the ones coming into contact with needles to get that kind of exposure. The second one, um, she's talking about uh, contaminated cooking oil. In areas of the world where um, cooking oil, she particularly was talking about South Asia here, I think the studies she's pulling on, um, there's cooking oil contaminated by PCBs. And um, what you see is that uh, men and women get some of the same effects from that, uh, but some different ones. Here, she's not talking about exposure. This is something that everybody is exposed to through eating fried foods, eating. This is not exposure in the act of cooking. So if you'll notice here, gender relations are not viewed as um, an effect on the exposure. Exposure is ubiquitous, but the the effects of this cooking oil exposure are different. Um, And where the line says that given the exposure, the risk of particular outcomes is affected by sex-linked biology. Although both women and men experience some of the symptoms, only women experience menstrual irregularities. Two more, um, hypospadias. It turns out that women um, exposed to potential endocrine-disrupting agents at work seem to have given birth to a higher proportion of male infants with hypospadias, which is um, an atypical formation of the penis. And here both gender relations and sex-linked biology are implicated. Gender relations because these particular endocrine-disrupting agents are more common um, in professions, again, that are female-dominated, nail salons, hair salons. um, uh, And sex-linked biology, in particular, um, if men are exposed, it's not going to affect their developing fetus because they're not carrying it. But also the fetus, if exposed, once a fetus is exposed, only if that fetus is developing a penis is it going to get hypospadias. So the particular effect, uh, the whole complex of, of uh, exposures and effects depends on both. This one is a uh, referral of, so sorry, here I am, um, 
uh, acute myocardial infarction or um, heart attack. Here we have gender relations, sex-linked biology, um, both affecting exposures and gender relations affecting the likelihood of the outcome given exposure. And the explanation, I'll read it since it's a little small. Gender relations are a determinant of how people present and physicians interpret symptoms of um, heart disease. Sex-linked biology might be a determinant of age at presentation. Men are more likely to have um, uh, heart attacks at young ages and possibly also different kinds of symptoms. Then the risk of the outcome given exposure, gender relations hits that because the uh, physician likelihood of referral for diagnostic and therapeutic interventions is quite different. Even now that it's recognized that heart disease is the number one killer of women, um, women are referred for less acute follow-up. They're referred for less specific testing. There are many, many differences in the way that plays out. Okay. So I'm going to jump past. I just want to talk briefly about bones. I'm going to leave the, I'm going to leave the slides off for a minute and, and jump to an example. When I say that I've just given you those examples from Nancy Krieger that describe um, a semi-ideal way of starting to try to untangle some of this. Actually, I've moved to a different way, but that's an interim step that, that you want to try to untangle sex and gender. Um, but what's typical in the field is that whatever difference you see, the automatic idea is that it's going to be due to biology. And in fact, there are very, very few studies in the literature that are getting reported in the journals, that are highlighted on the websites and so on, where there's even been a collection of variables that are relevant to the way that, that gender shapes our daily exposures through the different kinds of work that we do, through our different physical activities, to the different ways that people respond to us, and so on and so forth. Bones um, are really good to think with around all of this. Anne Fausto Sterling has done a couple of very beautiful pieces, The Bare Bones of Sex and The Bare Bones of Race. Um, and I draw partly on her work and on some other work to explain how bones can be looked at um, uh, through this lens and how typically they're looked at as pure biology. So begin with the aspect of bones that's one of the central phenotypic variations routinely cited as a sex difference. Males are taller on average, reflecting more length than the long bones. According to psychologist Richard Lippa, a researcher whose work I looked at um, in connection with this brain organization theory uh, and who has used huge BBC Internet data to examine height. Um, I've just lost my... Ah, here we go. Um, this is from Lippa. Quote, evolved biological factors are the primary cause of sex differences in height as well as in libido. The libido part is an aside. It's a funny part of the story, but I'm, I can't talk to you tonight about it. So he specifically contrasts the biological model for height and libido from what he calls a, quote, hybrid model, i.e., that both biological and social structure influences contribute to sex differences. Now, this is what passes for interactionism or synergy in most brain uh, organization and most um, sex-based medicine research, though it's what developmental biologists would call an additive or deterministic model. 
So the current basic theory behind sex differences in height is that growth plates or epiphyseal plates are generally more sensitive to the effects of estrogen than to those of testosterone. During puberty in the female, this comes from a sex-based medicine site, by the way. During puberty in the female, the, le the rising levels of estrogen seal the epiphyseal plate earlier than testosterone does in males. The effects of the male hormone, testosterone, are felt at a later stage. Thus, females stop growing earlier than males do. Okay, let me tell you a few things that are wrong with this. First, um, it gives the impression that males have testosterone and females have estrogen. And in fact, we all have all of the same hormones, but in, certainly in different levels. But what's so important, people get distracted all the time by the different levels. They don't mean that much because you have to know also about receptor sensitivity. And the fact that women have, um, that women respond uh, to teeny, teeny, teeny amounts of testosterone um, in the few clinical studies that are done in terms of the amount of um, facial hair, the skin texture, um, uh, muscle development, and so on, is just one signal that there's a different kind of calibration going on there, that, that sensitivity is entirely different. Um, there's a range, mind you. There isn't a flat female and male pattern. But on average, there is a difference um, that's quite profound. And this is one of the reasons why just looking at levels and just thinking of hormones as dichotomous gets very, very confusing, distracting, and misleading. Um, if I have time, I'll come back to say something more about, about hormones. But here, um, the story doesn't help account for a number of interesting problems we could observe about men, women, and height across populations and time. For example, if sex hormones, quote, I don't like to use that word, but they did, are the primary explanatory factors, how do we explain differences in groups that aren't defined by sex. For example, why are Dutch people so tall, even compared to other Western Europeans with similar health and nutrition metrics? How can we account for the fact that the average height among Dutch women is now somewhat higher than the average height among Spanish men was just a couple of decades ago? And why is it that the height in Dutch people and the rest of the industrialized world has been rising significantly during the precise period that age at Menark the time when estrogen levels dramatically rise, has been significantly dropping. And we could go on. It turns out that sex differences in height are changing at different rates in different populations. There are many, many ways where um, you, you simply can't use that story about it being a, a simple, singular, dichotomous biology to understand what's going on. But where Ann Fausta Sterling comes in is in understanding the way that our social world actually um, affects bones as well. And in particular, um, Fausta Sterling has, she's more talked about bone density than bone length. But she's pointed out that osteoporosis, which is something that's seen as a quintessentially female ailment, um, that there are populations where the sex difference in osteoporosis is reversed. And in particular, among Orthodox Jews in sections of Brooklyn, males are more likely to have osteoporosis than females at several ages. Why is that? Several interesting reasons. Probably having to do with the extreme focus on studying Talmud, being inside, not having a sports focus, not a lot of physical activity. The girls in these communities might be doing actually more physical activity and carrying things and so on with daily chores 
than, uh, than the boys. It's also true that this is a community where milk intake is restricted because of the rules of kashrut. So it, you're separating. There isn't just across the board as much milk and dairy intake. Um, and also uh, exposure to vitamin D has to interact with calcium in order to form, form bone density. So being inside a whole lot also affects your bone density. This is a place where you, you have to take into account a complex set of factors about specific gendered arrangements if you're going to understand the sex difference in osteoporosis. Um, now, it turns out um, that osteoporosis isn't the only place where that matters. But what I, the final take-home with that, the bottom line, is that there are certain, um, certain aspects of health that are routinely attributed to naked biology, and we already know that's not the case. What we don't know um, is, uh, at this point, how many of the findings out there that are attributed to biology, how many of this vast array of positive findings, in fact, could be explained by, um, by social patterns like the one I just described or by covariates. Four key problems, I'm getting very close to the end, in the current approach. First, false positives from this ubiquitous inclusion without specific hypotheses. What do I mean by that? The mandate that every single study needs to throw sex into the mix means that you're adding in a variable without a hypothesis. When you're doing any kind of statistical analysis, it's really important to control the number of variables you're looking at and to have a clear reason for looking at them. Every time you add another variable, you're adding another chance, you're adding higher chance that you're going to find things just by accident, by the luck of the draw. Think of it as rolling the dice. Um, there are, you know, it's like getting to roll the dice too many times. And I'll just say that there are certain things you can do to correct, like there's something called a Bonferroni correction that accounts for the number of comparisons you've made. Almost nobody ever uses those in this field. But even the Bonferroni correction doesn't actually fix it. You really should be hypothesis-driven in the first place. What this means is that you get lots and lots and lots of false positives. If you look at sex um, in every single data set and it comes up as being associated with, a fact, with something in five of those, chances are all five of those are going to get published. But if it's against the background of all of the comparisons you did, that's not meaningful at all. But it's actually more complicated than that because each one of those studies has done multiple, multiple comparisons. They've compared multiple possible exposures and outcomes for their association with sex. And instead of then controlling appropriately the reports, it's very popular, uh, including the fact that the IOM has said you should be reporting it. There's a journal devoted specifically to reporting differences, not similarities. There's a huge... Um, set of mechanisms right now that promote this kind of reporting. Second, there's this misspecification of what I have begun with a number of colleagues thinking about as a complex and entangled sex-slash-gender variable as both dimorphism and biology. I've talked some about how that's not really biology, and I'll, I'll uh, in a moment close with some observations about why dimorphism isn't the right way to think about it. There's information loss that happens. Um, 
I, I'll explain that in a moment. I'm just going to note it right now. And finally, because of this dimorphism thing and the information loss, there's misclassification of patients that happens when dichotomous patient profiles are built out of a mosaic array. So now I'm going to go into some nice fancy um, models to close with. There are multiple ways you could think about modeling sex gender differences. One is a bipolar model where you have feminine at one end and masculine at the other. In this model, being more masculine involves necessarily being less feminine and vice versa. It's a trade-off. And a lot of research initially started um, with this model in mind. Um, but and it still is, is treated in this way, in particular in a lot of research on, on hormones that get reduced to the idea that higher testosterone levels mean that you have a less feminine profile without taking into account the whole dynamic system. Another model, this is the orthogonal model. Here, there are two separate dimensions, masculine and feminine. And you can be either neither masculine nor feminine, or you can be feminine and masculine, or you can be one or the other. And the idea here is that there are separate dimensions. Psychologists increasingly use this when they're testing all kinds of psychological traits that are, that are classed as masculine or feminine. So things like um, when you uh, figure out if somebody is cooperative and, and nurturing, if they're uh, looking at you know, language skills versus spatial relations and so on, they are um, often coded as masculine versus feminine. Um, but the idea is that people ha can have these semi-independently or perhaps totally independently. Now, another model is what you could call the mosaic array, the complex mosaic array. And I argue that this is actually the most accurate way to think about sex. So what kind of difference is sex? Um, sex, or, or what, yeah, how would you represent it? In fact, it's multiple domains that um, are perhaps connecting in some places and ways, but they don't predict each other. And in particular, it's useful to see that even if you could take all of these different domains and separate them out as masculine to feminine, and you can think about the example of cardiovascular disease risk factors, um, and let's say this has, these are things like diabetes and arterial elasticity and something called the QT interval, which is the amount of time it takes the heart to repolarize between beats and, and so on. And each of these can be found to differ on average between males and females. So at the population level, these get coded as sex differences. Incidentally, one thing that happens is that array of bodily characteristics that I laid out as being sex, with this kind of research, that array grows. And these differences, uh, QT interval, arterial elasticity, et cetera, become new, elaborate aspects of what bodily sex means. So that's just a, a theoretical thing. But so we go back here. We have these different factors. But then notice this. The population mean you could line them up across a population mean, and males tend to fall on one side, females on the other. But what happens with particular people? Particular people, in fact, don't necessarily have a clear tendency across these. These are pretty independent. It's very interesting. So you can't know somebody's QT interval and predict their arterial elasticity. You can't know if somebody has diabetes and know 
uh, whether or not they um, also have a, a certain cholesterol level. Although there's, there's some, that's not a fully independent one, but it's not a very good predictor. So let's say you have patient A is spread somewhat around the population mean. Patient B, this is somebody who has a fairly feminine profile and just happens to have uh, scores on each of these dimensions that fall you know, to the female side of the population mean. But it's also just as possible, and there are plenty of people who are spread out like this. So what does this mean when you take specific information about these factors like QT interval, arterial elasticity, etc., and you then go back and say, we're going to do sex-based medicine. What happens is you, you, caught, you got to this place with information about some specific mechanisms. But when you move back up to an abstract population level, you lose information. You can't actually create a broad patient profile and treatment protocol that is appropriate for female heart disease patients and male heart disease patients because it's a complex disease with complex underlying traits, each of which is independently distributed differently for individual patients. And what, in practice, what that means is depending on which one of these things you pick, if you then measure, you have the opportunity to measure one or two things, and then you use sex as a proxy for how you're going to treat that person, you are going to be mis treating, you're going to misclassify sometimes nearly half of your patients. So it's a huge loss of information because we've gone from the specific back up to the general in a way that imagines that sex is a dichotomous variable when in fact sex doesn't work that way. Not even bodily sex works that way. So let's look at what if those distributions that we saw, if we looked at the normal, normal curves for different traits that were distributed differently, one of these could be a male distribution and one female. And again, you would see patients arrayed differently across all of those. But if you notice, one thing I want to point out is the area that intersects between those two curves, that's all the area of overlap. And what happens is, when, if you were able to specifically go for, for understanding something about the way each of these dimensions affected heart disease, you would have a chance of creating some kind of specific treatments. If, in fact, you're going on one of those to predict the rest, notice how much overlap there is in all of those different areas. The risk of actually creating a medicine that is skewed towards outliers is another risk here. The QT interval is a little bit longer in women than in men. And this, um, it's thought to be an effect of steroid hormones. It's important for the way drugs act in the body. Uh, actually, it's more about pharmacodynamics than pharmacokinetics, but that's okay. And um, in particular, cardiac arrhythmia associated with some drugs like the drug Seldane um, this QT interval was thought to be important. So if you go into the sex-based medicine literature right now, you'll see a lot of discussion about how males and females are dimorphic with respect to this QT interval, and it's important to understand it and come up with different treatments. Let's take a look at that dimorphism. Here's the male distribution, and here's what happens if you superimpose the female distribution on that. 
This, my friends, is not dimorphism. Um, dimorphism means of two kinds, of two forms. And I'm actually, um, I think even though I could keep on going and going, I think I'm at about time and I should stop here and say that this is a, a huge problem uh, both in language and in approach. Over and over, um, I just did a, a massive uh, search of the literature on sex differences in vaccines. And we know, for example, and it's, it's stated routinely that males and females have a dimorphic um, zero response to uh, immune challenge. In fact, um, that's not at all the case. It's complex. There might be some interesting sex differences there. It's a place to look. But this is an area where very, very few studies have looked at covariates that are known to affect immune response, things like alcohol use, things, interestingly, like pre previous pathogen exposures. Um, I, I could go on and on. But dimorphism is what it's not, and um, the risk is a lot of very bad treatment. So that's it. Thank you. You said at the beginning of the lecture that um, most of the funding for sex-based medicine was coming from government and pharmaceuticals. Um, I was at a previous lecture when, um, where um, it was said that pharmaceuticals aren't actually that interested in this because it slashes half hmm. their market. Can you clarify that? Yeah, actually, um, I was at that lecture too and I found that statement to be um, really surprising. If you go to all of the websites um, that, uh, for any of the societies for sex-specific uh, medicine or gender-specific medicine, gender-based medicine, et cetera, look at their sponsors and funders, and you'll see that every single major pharmaceutical company has put money in. The IOM report itself was funded by a partnership that included pharmaceutical companies. Pharmaceutical companies are extremely interested in this. I'm really glad you raised that, because this was a lecture on, on pain management, right? Um, and this is a, a lecture where uh, the idea of dimorphism was repeated a lot of times. But the, there was a statement that um, some, a pharmaceutical company representative um, had, been, that had, had been suggested that this drug that was shown to not work, that if they would go back and reanalyze it by sex, they might find some difference. And supposedly the drug representative said, no, we're not going to do that, we're not interested. Now, the implication we were supposed to draw was that, you know, there would have been some real difference there had they looked at the data. Think about this. Gender, one, is an incredible marketing tool. Um, in fact, sex and gender-differentiated medicines are sold to us all the time. Uh, sex as a way to actually target to a particular patient population and consumer population increasingly when you think about this whole realm is huge. It's one of the major forces, I think, driving the particular structure that this sex-based medicine takes right now. Um, given the way pharmaceutical companies work and the kind of investment they have in this, it doesn't make any sense to me that they wouldn't look. In, instead, I would say maybe they had looked and hadn't found anything and kind of wanted to keep mum until they could look at other analyses. I don't know. I can come up with other stories for why that would be. I also want to mention that that particular lecture, there was some really interesting data presented. Um, and I think the data is great. Some of the research is great. But I think a lot of the interpretation is really problematic. Um, for example, there was 
some research on, on different pain pathways, uh, different pathways for analgesia. So um, a particular kind of opioid drug, like morphine, um, some people respond to it better than other people. And one of the scientists presenting showed that there were some genetic linkages that could predict who did and didn't respond in a particular way. And this was presented as sex dimorphism. But in fact, if you, you looked at the actual slides and even heard the talk, um, it wasn't sex dimorphism. The group that responded differently wasn't women versus men. It was red-headed women versus everybody else. Again, that's a kind of dimorphism, but that's not sex dimorphism. And it's that, taking that particular specific difference and going back up to sex as a proxy is just simply misleading. What I'm worried about is, and everybody says right now that, se that sex-specific medicine is an important road stop on the way to individualized medicine, where we're really going to be looking at all that stuff and blah, blah, blah. And I say, let's think about marketing again. It's really, really unlikely. Nobody can market to you as an individual, but they can market to you as a woman, and they can market to you as a man, and there's a lot of incentive to keep it right there. I'm wondering, and perhaps this is the first step towards that, but given that the NIH Revitalization Act mandated that studies look right. at differences, um, is there any discussion at the policy level about how we start to think beyond these dimorphisms? And, um, or, I mean, or is this where we're beginning the conversation? Um, I, I think this is where we're beginning the conversation. Um, what I hope, what, what they should have said in there um, was to uh, make sure that they're um, looking at covariates. They should specify particular ways of analyzing sex if it's going to be in there. And in fact, I would, I would say that we need to really rethink that idea that sex should just get thrown into the model every time anyway because of the false positives problem. I haven't talked about my book tonight, but in a way you could see there's this idea, uh, the, the whole realm of research I looked at was the uh, studies that supposedly create um, a link between hormone exposures in fetal development and later patterns of personality and sexuality and so on. And there's a ton of research out there, tons and tons and tons of studies that find some kind of link between the two. So it looks like a gigantic pile of positive findings. But if you actually look closely at those studies and you begin to make those findings align with each other so that you're really comparing the same variables across time, um, you very quickly see that um, most of those positive findings are way outweighed by tons of negative findings on that same dimension. And what you find is that these positive findings are scattered across all kinds of domains from a huge amount of looking. So my interpretation is it's most likely a whole lot of false positives. There, there are other reasons why uh, the, those studies aren't convincing when you look at them together, but that's one way to look at it. Um, so I would also say if you're interested in, in how you might take that mandate and do something differently, I would hope that you'll look at this article that we just did, Beyond a Catalog of Differences, because we lay out a schema for conducting research in this realm, and we, we lay out very specific recommendations. I'm a biology and gender studies student, so I'm often caught in this very interesting place where I want to throw biology out the window. And <laughs> I'm wondering why you don't want to throw biology out the window? It seems like sometimes you're, you're okay with there being sex differences. 
So when in your research do you stop and say, actually, this might make sense. There might be a sex difference here, and this is valid. Mm -hmm. um, that's a great question. I try. I don't always succeed. But I really, really, really try to be agnostic because I think um, that, um, well, for one thing, I think that uh, it's more interesting and more fun than being ideologically committed to one outcome or the other. But also, um, I'll give you an idea, basically, of how I think um, biology might matter in terms of sex in a very broad kind of way. And this is wildly speculative, but I'm going to just... And it's vague, but I'm still going to give it to you. So I think that... Um, the way that we tend to focus on bodies as, as dimorphic is obviously wrong, and the way that things like hormones get um, attributed as male versus female is wrong. But I do think that there are the, the areas in which we are close to dimorphic have to do with our reproductive structures and our genitals. We're not perfectly dimorphic in those areas either, obviously. But it gets close to being dimorphic, and that is because of reproduction. And what's really interesting to me is um, that I think of bi uh, species that reproduce bisexually with males and females have a fundamental puzzle that they have to solve, which is that certain substances are used for the development and functioning of parts of those organisms that are going to be used for reproduction in a male and reproduction in a female. But those same exact substances are also supporting many, many, many functions that both males and females have. And that creates a very interesting developmental problem. You have a common substance that has both universal um, functions and specific ones. And our bodies have had to come up with interesting ways to negotiate between that. And I think that something like our receptors, our sensitivity to steroid hormones being broadly different between males and females. Again, there's, it's, say, testosterone sensitivity is one of the areas in which there is less biological overlap between males and females than, than most other characteristics. And to me, that signals precisely this kind of interesting problem, developmental problem that had to be solved through evolution. I think our mistake is that um, we tend to see a similarity in outcome and think that a similarity in influence or a similarity in the factors that affected it led to that, and we tend to see a difference and think that it had to be difference. But development is way more complicated. You can get to the same end point from different paths. You can have the same initial ingredients and end up in different places. And then when you add to that, the more that I learn about biology, the more I learn how context-dependent development is. And development, by, de by development, I mean life, because you keep developing until you're dead. We keep on, development isn't over, um, you know, when you're born or when you're a teenager or when you're a grown-up, you know. So just, I, to me, I hold on to it because I think it's complicated and interesting, and I don't think that there's anything fundamentally problematic about it. You're saying that basically the variable of sex is like incredibly complicated, so any findings that they're drawing on the basis of sex differences, they're, you know, hard to interpret. 
but like instead of dismissing you know um, those findings, would it not be better to perhaps make simplify the variable itself? So instead of uh, dividing people by sex, to have some kind of a combinatorial uh, definition. For example, have levels of hormones plus receptor sensitivity. So like an absolute uh, level of hormones that the body is seeing without anything else. Now in that case, would it be possible to extract some useful information from, you know, like if instead of using sex, you could use like absolute amount of hormones that the body is seeing, because that is quite possible um, to come up with. Well, but it's, it still doesn't work. I want to be clear in a couple of ways. First, I, I'm not in any way dismissing the research. I'm doing quite the opposite. I'm actually going into it very deeply and saying, how could we use the information that's here um, in a way that's more useful? And what other information might we need to get somewhere further with it. So I want to be really clear. Uh, I don't think that that's really not the same as saying, as dismissing it. Um, the thing that you have suggested, um, it's, in a way, it's a step in the right direction because you're talking about getting more precise. But the problem is that's only good when, when the question is something about steroid hormones. And on top of that, it's only good when the question is something about steroid hormone levels. Remember I said hormones, you need also to really understand receptor sensitivity if you want to do anything with that. And on top of that, you need to understand that it's a whole dynamic system with complex feedback loops. So the, the issue for me is that we're so used to thinking about sex as being the fundamental way to understand um, our, our bodies and our differences that very often we go away from even when we already have specific information. There's this urge to take that back into this abstract general phenomenon that doesn't actually give us anything, that in fact misleads us and um, keeps us from looking concretely at the mechanisms. I, I think that part of the issue is not only sex, but we have handed off research to pharmaceutical companies. The government has said, we have no money, you guys want to make money, so you know what, just come out with your own outcome. And that's the danger of we've lumped everybody together and no longer make any difference if there's a way to make a dollar. Well, I'll have to agree that there's a lot of problem with, with pharmaceutical research driving the field. But I, I want to just say that in the, in the realm of research that I looked at so closely for my book, um, most of that is not funded by pharmaceutical research, and it has the exact same problems. In fact, very little pharmaceutical involvement is in this whole brain organization realm. Um, but the same conceptual problems are going on there as well. I do think that pharmaceutical involvement and the marketing appeal of, of patient groups um, is going to be very, very hard to resist, but I, it doesn't capture the whole problem by a long shot. Yes, Hillary. Hi, Beck. I, I want to compliment you for including so many examples where environmental exposure <laughs> results in some adverse health outcome because I think that's really not given enough attention. But that being said, I want to ask you a question about quote-unquote raw biology. And okay. I know a moment ago you expressed some skepticism about personalized medicine, which is sometimes now called genomic medicine, with mm -hmm. the idea that we'll have you know, a $100 genome or a $10 genome within the, within the decade. Right. And 
I'm, I'm actually believe the opposite. I think that the pharmaceutical industry is embracing that because they see a quick sequence of somebody's genome as far cheaper than actual contact with a physician. Mm -hmm. And so that being said, I'm wondering if we can steer intelligently through that future landscape and are you know, genomic markers of this multi-dimensional idea of sex something that you've given any thought to? Yes, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, uh, I have given some thought. I need to give much more thought to it. That's something to really, really chew on more. Um, I guess I would just say quickly that the idea, I, I'm not skeptical that we could end up with a um, relatively cheap genomic profile. What I'm skeptical about is that that would be supported with the kind of in-depth research that would tell us anything about what the different allelic combinations would actually mean, because part of what we know when we've started looking at that, you know, at all, it, again, genes, part of the environment when you, for geneticists and developmental biologists is the rest of the genome. You know, it's that what one particular gene does is also influenced by all the other genes that are there, including sex chromosomes. And so that is a way, I think, of if we were to take the sex chromosome and put it back on par, in a sense, in a causal way, with the rest of the genome, we might start to get closer. It's very, they're powerful. There's a lot going on. But um, think about the ways in which the complex interactions have to be understood. We're talking about research on a sort of magnitude and um, that's not that plausible, particularly in a context where, um, I guess the other thing that I would just throw out is the possibility of super elite medicine versus genuinely terrible run-of-the-mill generic girl-boy medicine is some kind of real possibility. In a sense, cancer treatment is already moving in elite cancer centers. It is already kind of individualized medicine, um, but that's very unusual. But I'm going to think more about that question. Thank you. I'm wondering about this discussion of um, environmental interaction in the context of norms of reaction, which I know you've talked about in your book, where um, there's an interaction um, that, you know, you can describe it more if you want. Um, but in the context of females or women-specific medicine, um, do you think that the norms of reaction and environmental influence can, in some cases, be even greater than the effect of sex? And should we be taking that into account when looking at um, medicine that's supposed to be for one sex only? Uh-huh. Yes, I'm trying to think about how to answer that in a way that will make sense to anybody else. But um, um, so briefly, what Natalie has talked about is the, the norm of reaction, which is basically a map between the... Um, the genotype and the phenotype, meaning the characteristics of the organism, across different environments. And the idea is that when you say it's, that development is context-specific, it depends on the environment. And norms of reaction, um, if it's not flat, meaning if you don't get the same outcome across different environments, then you know that the environment is quite important. Well, um, the, the tricky thing with, with comparing a norm of reaction. It's not really like a, a comparison conceptually that works. 
um, to say, is a norm of reaction more important than sex for causing something. What you could do instead is, um, and I've kind of played with this idea, but it's really tough, and I haven't gotten my mind around it yet, um, mapping gender norms of reaction for certain kinds of things that we see as, as sex-linked, where you could map different gender environments and see how the trait varies on a population level. Um, and, and in fact, there's, there's some ways, you know, you can do that with, there's a really good example, spatial relations, which is the thing, the cognitive skill that is most consistently found to, to favor males versus females, and it's the most valid and replicated and so on. Check this out. The sex difference sometimes reverses. There are some populations in which the females score consistently better on spatial relations tests than males. So that's a really good example of how something that we look at as a stable sex-linked trait is in fact dependent in really crucial ways on environment, on, on different gender structures. Now, we don't know how to specify yet what aspects of those gender structures are making a difference. But what we know is that is a really good example for helping us to back up from the idea that we can proclaim anything as being hardwired. Have you found certain members of the community, whether it's in the field of pain management or cancer or maybe osteoporosis kind of questions, that are excited about your work and are kind of calling in to, to see what they can do to produce some data that um, you have to look at and uh, might be available? Well, there have been people who've been doing the kind of research that we're talking about in, you know, isolated ways for a long time. They just kind of get overwhelmed by the, the vast amount of, of sex difference work. Um, Professor Stellman, is, her work on occupational health is a fantastic example um, of looking at, you know, um, uh, my mind is going to go blank on specifics, but the, the looking in at covariates, not looking at sex as your first line of explanation for everything, but then also when you do see a sex difference, thinking about what are the ranges of ways that the males and females in your sample might be different. And that's true whether you're a cardiologist or, a, or you know, somebody doing pain management research, for example. Again, you know, um, uh, things like reporting sex differences, gender differences in reporting of pain have been looked at. Um, and increasingly, physiological differences in the experience of pain are looked at. But there's very little stuff out there that's looking, that I could find, that's looking in a really serious way at a lot of covariates about things like, um, you know, physical activity, diet, alcohol use, etc. And here's a really good gender structure one, which is body awareness. Girls and women are trained to be super conscious and aware of our bodies in a way I think that's quite different from the gender training that males receive about their bodies. I think that there could be implications for all kinds of symptom report in that 